Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everywhere we go, people want to know who we are and where we come from. So who are you and where do you come from? My name is Gillian and I am originally from Charlemagne Street. And Gillian, we have someone else with us tonight. Hey, hi, I'm Barry, and I'm from Belfast. So, Gillian, for the first time, this is the first time I've had a couple on. So, Root, actually, and Root, and I'd say, Root um, got in touch with me on True Instagram. She just sent me a voice note, and she was like, I've met these guys, I was having the chats, you need to hear the story, and you need to share the story. Um, so, do you want to tell me, you posted something on Instagram, why did you post it, and what was that about? So, I posted um, a story about Barry um who has uh lived with uh, mental health issues for over two decades um and in october he was two years sober and two years free of psychotropic medication so it was a little homage to barry <laughs> how long are you together um we'll be together 24 years next year next march have you got children Two children. Okay. Two girls. So when you met Barry, and Barry, I know you're in the room, so it's like talking to the third person. Okay. <laughs> but when you met Barry, how, one, how did you just meet? And then, like, what, when did the mental health issues start? Or were they always there? And both yeah. of you can answer these questions as well, but I'll start with you, Julie. So we met just after I turned 18 okay. in Swamp Critters. <laughs> a show me age. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and... No, the, the, well, I didn't really know anything about mental health at all mm. back then. Um, and you know yourself, the first months into a relationship, it's all rushes of love and all that, you know, your, all your youth behind you. Um, and it wasn't really until you had an accident in work and you were out of work, you'd hurt your finger. You had mm-hmm. surgery on your finger. Um, so it wasn't until then where he was out of work for a little while. I was still in work. He was kind of housebound. Um, and that kind of started off a little bit of a struggle. And we ended up moving up to Belfast then for a year. And um, that was it, like, so were you living in Belfast at the time when you met? I was working on building sites in yeah. Dublin. And then when I met up with Gillian, um the kind of team of guys that I worked with, they were heading off to Scotland, I think, next. And I decided to hang around. Oh, did you? <laughs> was it love at first sight? Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're mad about me. <laughs> oh, I thought you were saying, yeah, for me it was. <laughs> yeah. 
And then how long then did you, did, was the relationship that I started to get serious? Oh, we moved in together after seven months. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, got a little flat up in Rakar and we were there, we were only there a few months before we went up to Belfast. And we moved in there in November. I moved up to Belfast in the January. Mm. So we were only there a couple of months and then we were off up to Belfast. Um, so that was a massive shock to the system was it <laughs> yeah yeah um but you know at that age you think you know it all like mm. I'm going to Belfast. um what way was it a shock to your system because i'd only moved out of home right um couldn't boil an egg <laughs> like could just be me my own cup of tea mm. um and then when we got the little flat you know that's you all know, cool little house stuff. yeah that was grand but yeah totally culture shock um, you know, everything's so different and, you know, the whole kind of religious divide as well up there that I wasn't really conscious of. Mm. Um, nobody asks you questions like that down here. So, you know, it was kind of making yourself aware of what area you are in or, you know, same. Probably down here if you're going into a dodgy area mm, down here, mm. but a little bit more uh, watching yourself. Um, and then, you know, having... Working up there and then having people saying to you, like, you from the free state? Okay. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. I was like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we were up there for about a year. And then Barry started getting more work back down here. So then we moved back down and bought a house, bought our first house down here uh, in Kildare. And you kind of had a, well, probably one of your first episodes then we went to australia then as a little escape oh uh, yeah significant episode before australia. yeah i think it did do you want to tell me about that yeah so um i have a diagnosis of treatment resistant depression what is uh, it say again treatment resistant depression okay or should i say hard mm-hmm. um it's nice little talk in past tense um so yeah, when I, I've had maybe five or six what I would call serious episodes to the point where like I, I shut down and I'm not fit to go to work and Gillian would be encouraging me to get up and to get dressed and to eat and shower and you kind of just switch off, go bed bound um, for a few months. So I think I had an episode like that perhaps in Kildare and I think that was probably a big fright for Gillian because she'd never seen me kind of that incapacitated but. So, yeah, we just, again, I was always trying to find answers, you know, maybe something else. If we did something else, like, first of all, it was escape back to Belfast, then it was return to Dublin. And then we thought, yeah, we'll try Australia. Gillian's got family out there. But unfortunately, yeah, I went over not in a very good mental state, and there was alcohol and substances being used over there, and we had to return after a few short months, unfortunately. Didn't, okay. the, the dream didn't work <laughs> Barry would you talk into that for me as yeah, well as that? Sure. I can hear you um, and Barry mm. tell, talk to me about growing up for what it was like for you growing up up at Belfast because that's really new to me like mm. as well yeah so I guess it's kind of you spend a lot of time then trying to work out well if I have this depression how does it manifest you know why does it come around and you tr- mm, it's difficult to put uh, you know, people talk about traumas and childhood traumas and things, and uh, with my line of work, you know, obviously stuff that I would look at. Um, I th- think 
as a population in Northern Ireland, especially growing up for me and my youth uh, in the 80s and the 90s. Um, things were pretty turbulent up there, you know, and as Gillian talks about the divide. Um, thankfully, I lived in a little pocket of Belfast where it was f- kind of fairly neutral. And uh, I had friends from either side of the community, which was a blessing. Uh, but it didn't take you to venture very far outside of that little pocket where then you kind of were immersed in um, kind of the, the segregation and the bigotry and the hatred. And it was hard, hard to cope with and deal with for when you did live in that little bubble where, you know, I had as many friends from the... Protestant communities, they did Catholic friends, and we were good friends, very good friends. Um, yeah, it's difficult. Uh, so I guess, like everybody in Northern Ireland, you know, there's a degree of trauma there. Um, even it, well, obviously, what I witnessed myself, but as a collective, and obviously then generational as well. You know, it's in the genes. <laughs> so yeah, and it's mad because it is in the genes, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. And then you got coming down, down to Dublin and then that incident that you had before, I know we're going to jump a little bit before you headed off to Australia. Like, what was your mood? What was, like, what was going on? So depression for me is always feeling disconnected. You know, like, if this was me and my depressed mind a number of years ago sitting, we used to, used to be having a conversation and I would be present, but I wouldn't be here. Okay. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, so I think I described it to Gillian a number of years ago, and then she actually bought me a beautiful um, painting by a friend of ours um, on the first year of my sobriety. Um, and it was of a light bulb under the ocean coming to the surface. Um, yeah, because I always felt like I was drowning. Really? Yeah. And is that, like, mm. I, don't, I don't want to like it, but is that, a nor- like, is that a pattern when you see it in your work? That is that what people feed back to you? Yeah, well, again, so... This is another thing which is very difficult because people who know me now, like even people who have worked with me over the last four years in the hospital I've worked in, they can see the person that went out sick in December 19 and who returned in January, no, November 19, returned in January 2020, no, 18 and 19, sorry. They can see, like the people have actually said to me, like, you're a different person. And I'd be like... I actually feel like I'm a different person. Um, so it's hard to articulate how I felt back then. It's hard to put it into words. Um, but to try and make sense of it, it was a disconnect. I was disconnected from myself. I was disconnected from nature and I was disconnected from community. There was no sense of cohesion. Yeah, just quite lost, I guess. Just didn't enjoy anything. No, they got no enjoyment from it. Very little gave me enjoyment. Um, I had two escapes. One was the gym and the other was starting the bottom of an empty glass. Okay. And then, Gillian, when he had his first break, is is that what it's called, a break? I guess. Um, When he had his first break, was that just an absolute shock to you? Yeah. Like, I'd I'd never... experienced myself or with anybody else anybody with mental health issues so I was completely dumbfounded by the whole thing like I was like 
what's going on. Like I had no clue. Um, you know, when I first, when we moved up to Belfast was the first time you went to the doctor mm. um, about how you were feeling and, you know, he was prescribed an antidepressant and that kind of picked the mood up a little bit and I was like, oh, okay, you know, still hadn't, I don't think I'd have depression, anxiety, like I hadn't heard of it. Mm. Um, nobody in my family that I was aware of had suffered it. So, you know, and you know yourself, things are buried under the carpet and mm. not talked about. Um, so that was kind of the first time I'd come across it and really had no background, no information, no nothing really to work off um, apart from he's feeling low. Um, you know, but this antidepressant gave him a little bit of a lift and then maybe come back in to the winter again and you know we would definitely be more affected in the winter than in the summer months mm. um so we'll just up the prescription a little bit you know and it kind of went like that till well that one's not working now so we'll change it onto a different one and it, you know it was just mm. a constant cycle um so for me it was a learning mm. every time he went down into like a black hole it was like, shit, what do I do here? Mm. Like, what do I do here? You know, until it was getting to the stage where it was really bad. You know, at the start, it was kind of, well, for me, in my memory, um, low mood, not wanting to get out of bed or, you know, whatever. But it wasn't to the point of suicidal thoughts. Or maybe that he wasn't telling me. At the start, you know. Um, so as time went on, that all kind of filtered in along the journey as well. You know, every episode got that little bit worse. Um, so, yeah, it was it was hard, like, really hard. Like, how do you, like, because I, I don't, I'm, I'm not a cold person, but, like, you know, if Paul has the flu or anything like that, and I know I'm not saying the flu, and I, but I'd be like, come on, will you get up and get it? Like, how, like... When someone is that low, how do you keep going to try and get them to keep going and that you're not getting a response? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, there was days where you just didn't get out of bed, you know, and I'd be coming up, here's a cup of tea, here's a sandwich, you know, I don't want anything. You know, sit up and eat the sandwich, you need to eat. Um, you know, or get up and get a shower. You know yourself, a shower kind of washes off. Mm. A bad day or whatever, but obviously wasn't going to wash off what he was feeling. Mm. But, you know, get up and get a shower. You need to wash. You need to eat. You need to get out of bed. Um, Were you angry? No, I wasn't angry. Sometimes, I suppose, I was like, you know, Mm. oh, God, what what am I doing? Mm. Get up out of the fucking bed, you know. Mm. But it's not that you learn as you go on. It's not, you can't say things like that, you know, it's. You have a broken leg. Mm. Share grand. Mm. You know, a cup of tea is not going to fix it. Mm. Um, so it was kind of, I don't know, I suppose, trying to nurture him back into mm. some form of better health. You know, come on, you know, you can do this. What, what can we do that's going to make you feel a little bit better? Or... You know, to the stage where I was kind of ringing 
consultants and saying, you need to ring him mm. or you need to get him in because he's been in bed for days and I can't get through to him. Um, you know, so, yeah, that happened quite a few times and he, he did have a good consultant up in Belfast um, and she was amazing. So I was quite often when the, the episodes kicked in, I was quite often on the phone to her, you know, and she was kind of used to me ringing um, and she would ring me back nearly straight away and I'd say, you know, you need to get him in. He's not good. Um, I She pulled him out quite, pulled him out quite a few holes over the years. Um, and could you see then that you're talking about learning, could you see, start to see then as time went on, you'd say, there's a trigger, yeah. I'm watching him, I can yeah. see he's going to. Yeah. Definitely. And as I say, mostly coming into the winter, over the winter, the winter months were bleak, weren't they, really? Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely a seasonal effective component to it, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, summer, you have the bright mornings, you have the late evenings, you know, there's more time in the day. <clears throat> um, but the winter, you're getting up in the dark and you're coming home in the dark. Um, so is that why you taught then, you know, when... Australia then was going to save it and no Australia was a panic escape for me because you know Barry was saying I want to go home and I was like oh god back to Belfast you know and I didn't Mm. want to go back Mm. I didn't really like it the first time around Mm. um it took me so long to get work up there the first time around so we were in his man does for a while till we got an apartment so you know you're kind of in somebody else's space and you're conscious of that um so I knew he was going to say no, like, I want to go, I want to go back home. And I was like, what about Australia? You know, and it was an escape. And it was a disaster. Disaster. From the minute we got there till the minute we jumped on a plane home. And like, we literally booked the flights with about three hours, four hours. To come back, yeah. To come back, like, um, just threw everything in a suitcase and go back on the plane and arrived back in Dublin for maybe a couple of hours and was on the train back up to Belfast and he went back into, but he'd been in the building game for 10 years then mm. and it was very, very stressful. Um, so when we went back up to Belfast the second time, he went back to uh, third level education to get um, the qualifications to get into Queen's University. That's when he started the, the mental health nursing. Um so and Barry, did you, sorry, did you see Belfast as your saviour? Like, was that your comfort zone? Um, I guess everybody has that kind of home they call home home. You know, mm. you had your parents and you had your family and friends um, that were there. So, yeah, I guess it was a place of refuge. Um, I guess I probably felt a bit safer there than I did maybe being in Dublin. Um, and so. did your parent? Were your parents aware that you were struggling, or did uh, you hide that? No, my parents knew when I kind of had the first depressive episode uh, in Dublin, and we came back up to Belfast. They knew there was something amiss, and they uh, had me go to the family GP. He had me seen by a psychiatric um, community nurse, and he commenced me on an antidepressant. Um, so I think I was probably open enough where they knew that was going on, but to what extreme, how things were. Again, unfortunately, when people are struggling, the last thing they want to do is share. Because you always carry this thing on, just putting it on people. People don't want to hear about it. So you don't talk, and then that just you know doesn't help things either. <laughs> so yeah. But, um, 
So yeah, back to Belfast then, and um, again for another escape, I kind of I, I not that I disliked the building game, um, just had no passion for it. I kind of went into it because I'd left uh, school first time around, not what, not knowing what to do. And then I kind of thought, look, if I get into nursing, um, you know, maybe helping others would help me. And I wasn't even going to do mental health nursing. It was during the year uh, I had to do a higher education uh, course to get into Queen's to do the the degree in mental health sciences. One of the guys I got friendly with in the access course, Marty, his whole family worked in mental health nursing. And he just went on to me for a year, I'm telling you, you need to apply for mental health, forget about general. And I don't know for what reason, but I listened to him and I said, right, I'm going to apply for mental health. And it was actually a blessing because I have to say, I absolutely love it. I've been a mental health nurse now for about 15 years. And uh, yeah, there's uh, even in my darkest moments when I've had my episodes, um, where things have been tight, you know, I've always been able to maintain work and always enjoyed getting into work until I got to those breaking points where I just couldn't function anymore. So it's... The nursing has been a saviour for me as well, yeah. And when you said there about you and you got to break the point, like, so was was it like that you were constantly going out sick or like what was? What was uh, no, I've had no like there was never like I never missed days for the colds, for the flus, any of that stuff. Mm. Um, every now and again, I might have taken like a mental health day where I'd say, look, I just need one day to reset, but that would have been a trigger. This is going downhill fast because again, that was just against my kind of. That's against how I run. You know, um, if I haven't got an actual physical reason, this is the thing with mental health difficulties as well. You kind of talk to yourself, you haven't got a physical reason why you can't go to work, apart from what you're listening to in your head. So you have that battle going on as well, you know, and the guilt and shame sets in of that as well. But, um, yeah, so I think I've had like three episodes um, where during the nursing time where I've maybe been out for a couple of months where I've had a real significant episode. But apart from that, generally, I wouldn't miss a day. And you said there that um, people said to you that the different Barry from then to the different Barry now. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about in your your nursing who that Barry was. Okay, so the old Barry was a nurse that, and I still do now very much, but um, the nurse that spent the day on the floor and never in the office unless you needed to be in the office. I'm not saying that nurses hang out in the office, but... You know, there's a culture and that's the time when nurses can sit together and have their downtime and have their chats and um, I just never fitted in with that, don't get me wrong. Smashing colleagues, really lovely people, got on very well with them. But I, for whatever reason, just always felt more comfortable being on the floor with the people that I was there to help look after. Um, So I think people kind of always knew there was a distance with me that worked with me. I think they knew, but there was always, it didn't matter what hospital I worked in or what ward, I would always, there'd always be one person or maybe two that always kind of seen past the mask, the persona, and could see what was really going on. Uh, again, blessed. Um, and those people would make a connection, and those people I could maybe get a bit closer to. Um, so, kind of, you know, people probably just thought I was maybe a bit quiet or withdrawn. Um, and then the time when I came back after that last significant episode and whatever happened, things reset. Um, like I actually had people turn around to me and say, "Like you're a different person," and I'd be like, "Yeah." And yeah, it's just it's remarkable. I don't know. Um, I'm truly blessed. 
And you said there um, as well about being on the floor with people. Mm. With someone with mental health, like, is that the place for them to be? You know, like... Uh, again, because it was an opportunity for me to get out of my head. It was an opportunity for me to try and stop listening to the nonsense that was going on in my mind and focus on others. It was another distraction. So, and, you know, it came with genuine compassion and empathy because I wanted to help those others. So it wasn't that I was doing it just to hide or to play act. It actually gave me a sense of purpose. It gave me something back that I knew that, you know, I mightn't be walking the exact same path as you, but I'm walking a similar path and, you know, I'm here to, uh, yeah, walk that path with you if I can. You must be really proud of him, are you? Yeah, right, like. <laughs> <laughs> and Gillian, when you were uh, saying it, that so when Barry was saying that he wanted to go off and do do mental health, like, what's going on in your mind when he's telling you this? Yeah, you know, it was a big change, I suppose, from um, being on the the sites. But I knew he was miserable mm-hmm. on the sites. You know, there was there was no love or joy in that work. He was out the door at the crack of dawn and you know god knows what time he was coming home at and where he was coming home from you know it could have been the other end of ireland um so it was long days and long hours and you know exhausted then when you did have time off but to the point where he would physically work himself to the bone you know that you're going to hit a wall you know and that's what happened every now and again and um yeah so when he was saying I'm going to go back into education. I was like, well, fine. You know, good. And, you know, I think, I think at the time you, you were kind of saying that you, you got it, you know, from being on the other side, you know, he was in services, he used services. So he knew what it was like for the patients that he was working with, you know, and I think that empathy then kind of stood to him in knowing how they were feeling, you know, and I think that kind of resonates through to the patients, you know, even the patients that he works with now, you know, he comes home with cards and letters and, you know, they're beautiful writings, aren't they, mm. from your patients. Um, so, yeah, you know, it was a it was a long road. Like, <laughs> you know, he went back to Queen's for three years and he'd be doing up all the assignments writing them all out for hours and hours and then he'd say here will you type that up for me <laughs> and then Mug here would be sitting up till two o'clock in the morning to have it ready for him to hand in the next day like because Barry's typing is like this <laughs> one finger typing it hasn't, it hasn't been it hasn't improved years at all. <laughs> even the kids like him um, dad is this you <laughs> but um, yeah you know and then I think changing career kind of did give you a good boost mm. you know he does genuinely love his job like I'd be fighting with him for not trying to get Christmas off mm. you know I'd be like does anybody else have kids in there you have kids why are you mm. not asking for Christmas off and he's like and I'd be at home here. <laughs> and he'd be like I have to go to work <laughs> but um, no he does he, and he's, he's brilliant at his job um, so it's definitely Definitely a good move compared to what he was doing in the building sites. You know, that was just empty. 
And then Barry, were you, like you said earlier on, about um, substance and al- alcohol? So, like, what was that all happening still through your your career in mental health? No, too? obviously, kind of the partying was more your 20s. Yeah. Um, I went back to higher education, was 26. Right. So that had all kind of started to dissipate. Um, but, yeah, listen, I'm not going to try and make myself out to be any angel. Um, alcohol was the main vice because it was the readily available one and it was socially acceptable. But I've had my share. Of, I've had my share. Mm. Yeah. And then when you're so you're being medicated throughout this whole thing. Yeah. And at what point then um, do you say I, I can't do this anymore? So there, one a number of events. I suppose put it in sequence context. The kind of the story picks up then when we come back to Dublin. Gillian kind of had come to the point where at the stage with two young daughters and she'd watched me go down so hard so many times. And as much as I'd never spoke to her about suicidal ideation, as much as I'd never actually actually um, tried to take my life, um, I think that was always burning in the back of her mind. One of these times he's going to go down too hard and he's not going to come back up. So she said to me, then can we go back to Dublin? <clears throat> and we had the house up there. I had a steady job. Um... I was kind of reasonably happy. Things were all right. Um, but I kind of knew it was the right thing for Gillian because I knew myself if things got that bad and if I did get to the point where I decided I couldn't do it any longer, um, I wanted Gillian to have the support of her family and friends down here. So, yeah, we came back down and then we were living in an apartment and Forgive me for I'm not great with dates and stuff. But I think we're going back to (coughs) August, September in 18. Gillian was in Belfast um, seeing a few friends and the girls were at their grandparents. And uh, a lovely summer's evening, I was sitting out on the balcony with a charge of cans. And I don't even know, like I wasn't in a particularly bad place. Um, But I started to eat salpiting. And I had six cans of beer in me, and I was out of cans, so I needed to go for more cans. And on the way to the can shop, I went into the chemist and I bought another box of Salpatine. And then I thought, because I had a few cans in me, I'll chance this in my back, because they're not generally supposed to sell you two boxes, I think, in a row. But it was another girl who served me, and she served me a second box. So between the two boxes that I'd bought and what had been in the house already, I think I took it in around 50 Salpatine that night. And... Um, I don't know how. Uh, well, I do know how. Thankfully, I woke up vomiting during the night. And um, I got up the next morning vomiting. I went into work. I spent the morning in work vomiting. And then about two months later, I told Gillian what had happened. And she had me go to the GP. So GP, again, I was already uh, referred into services here in Tala. Um, fantastic uh, consultant. Uh, I don't really want to give names of doctors okay. and stuff, if that's okay, mm, just to protect okay. our privacy as well. Mm. But No, lo- lovely doctors down here uh, that were helping me out. And, uh, yeah, so the doctor was aware that that was, was kind of the first suicide attempt, as much as the thoughts had been there for many years. I'd always been, been able to resist them. And, um, yeah, so... Is this where we're talking about the clinical trial? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, obviously working in mental health, I had been aware of um, 
clinical trials that have been taking place that were started again in 1999 in America and then followed suit a few years later in Europe where they were using um, psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression and for addiction. So I had actually been looking into this uh, for a number of years and at times I'd been telling Jillian I was going to go to Peru to the Amazon jungle and uh, I'd found a retreat centre in northern Spain mm-hmm. and Jillian would just be looking at me going like, Barry, you are in no shape to go to South America or to go to Spain to sit with strangers, taking psychedelic drugs, telling me that that's going to cure your depression. Obviously not knowing anything about it, she thought that was an absolutely crazy idea. And I can get that. So anyway, uh, the professor that was looking after me um, in Tala, uh, one of her senior regs actually was um, undergoing clinical trials for psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression in Tala Hospital at that exact time and turned around to me and said, Barry, this might sound a little bit crazy and probably clean off your radar, but uh, would you ever consider psilocybin? And I literally, my heart stopped. What is it? Magic. The, it's the active com- compound in magic mushrooms. Okay. And is that happening in Ireland? Yeah, there's actually two hospitals that run the trials right now at this moment. Uh, St. Pat's Hospital and Tala Hospital. And would you have even numbers of people who are in those trials? Uh, again, to protect, yeah. the, to protect the trials because they are very much still clinical yeah. studies and for all the people that are involved, either from working or participating... I don't want to talk about numbers yeah. or too much, yeah. but um, that was going back till what that was. They were looking to enrol me come towards the end of nineteen, so they've been running here in Belfast for or Dublin, Dublin sorry <laughs> for for a few years anyway. Um, I think they might have had to go on hold or were postponed temporarily with all the stuff that was going on um, with COVID, but uh, they're up and running again now currently. And as I say, some Pat's hospitals run them as well, also. So yeah, I'm absolutely delighted that um, these these medicines, these plant medicines, hopefully are going to make it to the general public sooner rather than later. Um, that's kind of my personal slant on that. Um, kind of to give you a context, then without kind of not talking about um, Dublin and what's going on here, um, the trials that have been held throughout Europe, um, they're having phenomenal success. Really, really good success. Plus, they're branching into other things. They're looking at um, depression, uh, addictions, um, PTSD, and as far as I know, there's clinical trials for anorexia nervosa as well currently. Um, so, and I think there is a number of states in America that have now dropped the legislation where uh, psychedelics are now approved for recreational use again. Um, but I'm not interested in what's going on with that. What I'm more interested in is also what they've done is for clinical therapists. They're giving them a free license to take these and actually work with their their clients using the psychedelics, um, the plant medicines. Um, for, yeah, there's another thing is as much as we're talking about plant medicines here, um, I'm talking about medicines being used in a clinical setting for yeah. healing as a healing modality. I would not advocate for anyone to use these medicines for any recreational purposes or to self-endeavour in trying to take these substances in any way to try and help um, alleviate any mental health issues for could potentially be very, very harmful. But back to the positive side of it <laughs> is, yeah so, um, yeah, so Compass Pathways is the company that I would have been doing the trials with here, and they're just one of a number of companies doing it. 
And I think it was them just reading up in the history is like over the last 10 to 20 years, they've had to crowdfund their money to pay for the clinical studies. But why it's kind of good, you'll see more of it now in the mainstream media and it's getting talked about. But what's kind of happening, which gives me heart that it's going to happen sooner than later, is for a company that had to crowdfund to pay for the clinical studies, they floated on the stock market uh, last October and they're now a billion dollar company. Wow. So the money's there. So what has happened is they've now taken the psilocybin and have synthesized, synthesized it in a lab, and they're going to. I think it's, they're saying it costs two hundred dollars a gram to synthesize. So not only are they producing it in a lab, but now to bring it into a hospital setting, you have to pay for the hospital, you have to pay for the doctors, you have to pay for the nurses, you have to pay for the therapists. So again, it's become monetarized, which is a travesty. But that's how the medical system works. I don't care how it gets to people. If it's going to get the people and if it's going to help. Now, the other great thing as well is that the FDA in America, two years running, gave uh, psilocybin special status, which meant that they were going to push it harder and expedite the clinical trials as fast as they could. Uh, for the other reason being that when it comes to the opioid crisis in America and Canada, they reckon this is probably one of the strongest tools they have. Really? Yeah. This isn't like our learning from like, <laughs> Oh, you know what it is? This is a travesty because I have since told people about the clinical trials that I work with. But um, apart from the few that I've worked with or the few that will be involved in the trials in the hospitals, I can guarantee you there's very few mental health nurses um, or even psychiatrists in Ireland are aware of the trials are even taking place or what, what the results are. But the results are very, very promising. Actually, there's another thing which gives me hope as well because it means with the money's behind it, you know what's happening, is for the first time in 50 years, the FDA uh, or the NIH, National Institute of Health, awarded um, a psilocybin trial $4.8 million. That's the first public funding in 50 years, and that's for a three-year study for psilocybin for smoking cessation. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's bonkers. It's, 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 <laughs> it's like it's... Unbelievable, isn't it? Like, I, I didn't even know any of this. And, you know, and the thing is, imagine how many people this potentially could help. Yeah. Yeah. And especially right now, and we won't talk about it, but, like, yeah. what's happening right now to in, give in the world. You, to give you kind of feedback from, uh, well, that's, again, there have been fairly small studies tonight, but um, for smoking cessation, a study that already has taken place, um, chronic smokers, I think it was uh, after one session of psilocybin, where they described the session um, was mystical. We can get into that maybe later. Basically, they were fully immersed in the medicine. Um, I believe it was 85% of those people were not smoking six months later. Wow. Yeah. And then for the mental health, for the treatment-resistant depression, they've done a comparison study between L-citalopram, which is a fairly good uh, antidepressant, and remember, you're only taking the psilocybin maybe once or twice. Yeah. Where you're taking the L-citalopram seven days a week. That's what I wanted to ask. Yeah. Mm. So basically, they were saying that it was showing that the uh, the um, psilocybin was as effective, if not greater efficacy, than the standard SSRIs that they're being trialed against. So the psilocybin, you wouldn't be on that for the rest of your no. life? No. It's literally the trials that have taken place that I'm aware of at the minute, like the one I was taking place of, it was going to be... One, one, one session and then uh, I think the ones that they're running in the UK at the minute I believe is maybe two or three sessions but like again those um, those trials um, that I watched the documentary in the UK one they were following people up after 
And again, they're coming back and they're following these people up six months later. And like you're talking, the vast majority of these people were still reporting that they were symptom-free after maybe experiencing a lifetime of depression. The mind is incredible, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Incredible. Yeah. So, that, yeah, that's that's kind of maybe why we, I'm here. I'm here because Jillian's posting stories about <laughs> me on Instagram. <laughs> and then she tells me, yeah, she tells me yesterday we're doing a podcast tomorrow night. I was like, oh, are we? <laughs> um, so, yeah, in the hot seat. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of why I'm here is to portray a message that... Um, to people, obviously not just saying, look, plant medicine is going to help you if you have any of those psychiatric uh, conditions that I forementioned. Um, and I'm not saying that this is the only healing modality also, because this was, you know, these this is only part of the story, me telling you about these plant medicines. There's a, there's another part of the journey as well. Um, but yeah, what I'm trying to portray to people is, is that um, don't give up, is basically what I'm saying for... I was at a point where I actually had lost all hope. I didn't believe there was any coming back. And I don't know how, but for some reason, there was a reason why I was to hang on. And that reason now is, well, partially why I'm sitting here chatting with you two. You know, so, yeah. Another thing, just when we're talking about suicide, it was something I was thinking about earlier then, because obviously when Gillian tells you you're doing a podcast, you kind of, <laughs> you have to have a think about, right, what am I going to talk about? But yeah, just thinking about something this morning, um, it actually, uh, I don't think Jillian, the rest of us crying in the car driving up this morning thinking about this, but for anybody that's lost anybody to suicide, um, please be assured and have the comfort in your heart to know that those people, they never wanted to leave you. They just couldn't stay any longer. So true. I had done a podcast with a couple of people who have lost I am um, brothers, husbands um, to suicide, and you know I, it was Fiona. She said that he was free. She wasn't like she said it. It like the initial of the seeing the guard at the door at the door when they pulled up, and then you know everyone coming to the house. And she said literally within a couple of hours she had the realization. Oh my God, he's free. He's free, and. You know, she's not angry. She's like zero angry in her, in, in her, anger in her. She was like, he is free. He was so sick, Rebecca. And I know he wanted to be here for me. He wanted. So your message, you know, will mean so much to so many people because, it, as you said, the mind is it's incredible, so but it's so it's dangerous. So yeah, it's such a dangerous thing as well. well but no matter how, how dark it gets, um, believe me. Um, and again, because you don't want to say the whole cliche stuff, but. There is always light there, and that's how I would talk to people now that I am engaged with in recovery and um, whatever mental health issues they're dealing with, is um, I talk to them about a light or a fire in their chest, and I tell them, right now at the minute it might feel like a candle that could go out with the gentlest of breezes, but if you nourish that candle, and if you feed it, you can walk out of this hospital, and that will be like a blazing inferno that's going to shine out of your chest and yeah I know it's a message when you're down there because I've been down there and people have talked to me like that and you're like doesn't make any sense I don't believe you but all I can say and again you know I can't really divulge to my patients my own 
medical or uh, mental health issues. It's just kind of not done. So, you know, I kind of talk around issues and talk about scenarios and things without talking about this is my story. But, uh, yeah, just trying to um, keep the keep the ambers that far uh, alive for them to the point where they're able to, to nourish it themselves. You know? Barry, I know Julian's um, here, but, like, mm-hmm. what advice or what would you say to a partner, to a wife, to a mother? Like, what do you say? Oh, first of all, thank you. <laughs> um, I'm truly blessed, and I think anybody that suffers with mental health problems that has a partner or a family member in their lives that is there and stands by them. Yeah, you know, they, they, those people know they're incredibly blessed for, um, yeah, between the down periods and the excessive drinking and in the young years, the, the partying and going missing and like Jill's put up with a lot of shit, you know, and stood by me for every bit. And actually, it's funny because when I kind of made my real big breakthrough, when I actually came to this realization that I no longer experienced depression, um, which is hard to explain to people. It's like an avatar. I took off one avatar and put on another. But I said, well, first of all, I apologized. Um, and I thanked her for sticking around. Um, and then I asked her, I said, well, why did you hang around for all those years? <laughs> you know, pick up the mic. <laughs> <laughs> I get too emotional now. <laughs> he used to say, and he, like he didn't, you didn't remember quite a few times that you did say, you know, when he was having a bad episode, he'd say, Why are you here? Why are you sticking around? Um, you know, this this is no life for you, this is shit, and um, you deserve better, and you deserve better than me, and um, I'm just holding you back, you know, all these things, and. You know, I'd kind of be sitting and holding his hand and I'd be saying, because I can see you. You just can't see you. But I see who's in there. And he will come out. He will find his way. And I'll be here. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When he does. So. Yeah, it was only kind of when you. You kind of found yourself. And I remember saying to him one day, do you remember you used to ask me that? I said, do you remember my answer? He says, no. What was it? I said, because I knew you were in there. That's why I stayed. I could see you. Um, and he'd still get emotional. Uh, now I'm like, now I can see you. Maybe I'll run. <laughs> <laughs> I, started, I started me on 5K a few weeks ago. <laughs> Good no, no. Um, what advice would you give a partner or a family, or es- mm. especially in, and maybe again, Barry, you can answer from your side, especially dealing with teenagers, you know, parents dealing with teenagers, because I think we have this coming to us in a few years' time, mm. what's going on. So maybe I'll ask you, Julie, like as um, a partner, what would you, what advice would you give? And then Barry, maybe with your head and your shoulders. With um, I suppose I suppose the last couple of years have been massive learning curves for the, the two of us um, in realising you know that yes there is a place for pharmaceutical medication there's a lot of people use it for anxiety, depression, PTSD whatever and you know what really does help them but it masks the problems. It doesn't ever get you to the root cause of why that's there. You know, and that has been a huge part of the journey mm. for the last two years. Um, for both of us, you know. Um, trying to sit with yourself and you know, work out what's going on inside you and what people call shadow work. You know, going to the depths of your soul. You know, seeing parts of yourself that you never thought would see the light of day. But allowing that to come up, to acknowledge it and to sit with it. You know, being able to do that as horrible sometimes as it is um in what way in like getting right down to your feelings and like like um i suppose 
I can I can talk for myself. Um, before we moved down to Dublin, I started having chronic anxiety for four years. Right, every single day from the minute I woke up till the minute I went to bed, I thought I was going to drop dead all day every day. It was horrific, horrific, um, and kind of thinking. It was to do with Barry, you know, was he going to take his own life? Am I going to be left here with two kids on my own? Um, you know, all that kind of scenario. I remember being on lying on the floor in the kids' bedroom while they were going to sleep, texting my friends saying, if anything happens to me, will you make sure you look after the girls? Because he wasn't in any fit state at the time. You know, he was quite unwell. And I was like, Jesus Christ, you know, like, what if something happens to me? Um, and that went on for a long time. Um, until I learned that nothing externally was going to help me I had to go in I had to go inside and see where that anxiety was coming from and it's probably been the hardest two years nearly of my life Um, you know going back to trauma that I carried Um. But when you allow yourself to do that, when you allow yourself to go to those dark places and let that surface see it for what it is, acknowledge it and drop it. It's liberating. I don't have anxiety anymore, you know, and it was horrendous. It's horrendous. Um, you know, but I went to the doctor when that happened and it was like, here's an antidepressant, here's a beta blocker and here's diazepam. Mm-hmm. That wasn't saying, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Where is this coming from? And did you find it where it was coming from? Yeah, yeah. I had to dig deep. I kind of always knew, just wasn't prepared to look at it. Um, you know, but that's maybe for another podcast. <laughs> um yeah, you know, so it's, you know, it has been, it's been two years, like, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so has it roles reversed then? Not in no, um, no, because we've, we've kind of both been on similar paths, I suppose, um, for the past couple of years mm-hmm. um, in trying to help ourselves, yeah. you think know? The only difference with our... Gillian doesn't want to kind of put it on me, but I, you know, her her anxiety manifests from the fact that she was worried that either I would complete suicide and she'd be left on her own with the girls, or if something happened to her and I became depressed, what would happen to the girls? You know, and that's where her anxiety manifests from. Um, so part of the healing journey, when she sees that I'm better, and I've, as a part of my inner work, have recognised and acknowledged that and said, look, you know, you don't need to worry now. Should anything happen to either of us, whoever's going to be left, that person and the girls will be just fine. It'll be okay. So that was a massive lift for her. But then, you know, obviously Gillian had to do her own inner work with that as well. But, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I know what I was trying to say. Because Gillian seen that I was in such a stronger position, it meant that Gillian could look at herself. Gillian didn't get a look in at herself for 20 years. You know, she was always... You know, first initially looking after me, then looking after two young girls, 
very busy as well when she was in Belfast. She had her own little business. And there's another thing then that um, where I'm truly blessed to have Gillian in my life. Um, Gillian was a beautician by trade, but a therapist by nature. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I just knew by, like, I think, you know, um, people that work in that industry build up clients and friends and uh, friendships. But, you know, Gillian never switched off. Like, it could be day or night of the weekend, or we could be anywhere, and Gillian would be on the phone, there'd be a client, and I'd be like, right, okay. Like, these people are opening up their hearts and telling Gillian their life stories. And um, that then became very apparent to us in my journey. When I was on my re recovery, everybody that we met that was assisting me with my recovery would look at Gillian and say, something about you. They could just see that Gillian has a gift um, for holding and carrying other people. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's something she's exploring well as well now <laughs> at the moment. And hence, that's why this post came about on our page, I guess, as well, because um, Gillian is stepping into that role now as part of her own recovery. She in exploring her own shadows and her own shadow work and her own soul loss. She's now training to extend her own knowledge base that she can help others, assist others with that, doing the art of shamanism. Mm. It's amazing. Oh, it's amazing. And that, yeah. that alone, like apart from anything else I have done outside of that, that's been the last year, uh, one weekend a month, and you're sweet. Jesus, have I done some work on myself <laughs> in that court? You know, you think, oh, it's going to be great. You know, mm. get your drum out, bang your drum. You come home in a heap most weekends. It takes you nearly the month to process what has come up for you on that week, and then you're going back again. You know, so it has been a constant year of work on thyself. Um, you know, but it's a never-ending journey yeah once you start it mm. you know there's always going to be layers and layers and layers to peel back mm. but i'm kind of now that i go on my course tomorrow um and it's the last weekend i graduate then in january uh and i forget what i was going to say there <laughs> <laughs> don't worry but it's it's like because i know there's um a couple of it's Reiki, is that for what it is? No, the, is it? the shamanism is, so I'll be a qualified shamanic practitioner. Okay. Um, and, it, you know, there's there's loads in it. I'll be doing, like, soul retrieval, I think, will be a major part for me um, to do with people. Uh, it has been a major part of my own healing, um, doing soul loss work within the group um and you know there's psycho pump there's working with earthbound spirits uh crossing earthbound spirits over um it, the list is endless it's endless i just said another podcast <laughs> we'll yeah. have to sit down again you and get through it, it yeah. is it's, it's endless um but it, it has been transformational like For i remember you. going up on the fourth weekend thinking what am i doing here mm. what am i doing here this is way out of my depth. Mm. And, you know, the um, shamanic journeys, it's like a trans journey. Mm -hmm. um, and the people in the group, they were coming back. And, it, like, you're just lying with your eyes closed. It's all visualisation. Mm. Um, and I could visualise nothing. 
and these all the girls in the class were like oh I connected with this guide and this archangel and I was like <laughs> the fuck are they going like? <laughs> I seen the black behind my eyes <laughs> you know um, but you know the my tutor is amazing um, she was like you're going to have something before the end of this day and I did um, you know and it has gradually grown um, with each weekend there you know and I'd come home and we'd be telling Barry and he's like I'm telling people that you sound like a fucking nutcase. <laughs> and do as a, like a mental health nurse, do you believe in that? Like, do you know? Do you yeah. know what I'm trying to say? This is another aspect. Then, um, for if mental health care is supposed to be um, holistic care, this is the aspect that I was missing, and I think this has been one of the biggest pieces in my recovery. If it's holistic care, it shouldn't be mind and body. It needs to be mind, body, and soul. That was where my illness uh, manifested from. I had soul loss and didn't identify with it. Okay. I didn't realize. Uh, I was I was a homeless soul. Um, I professed to people for years I was an atheist because I'd grown up watching the violence in Northern Ireland and two communities fighting over um, different texts of the, a, a similar book. I, um, yeah, I was kind of adamant that I wanted to be godless if that's what God entailed. Um, so I think that's where I spoke earlier about the, the, the loss of connection from self um, that's the soul loss loss of connection from nature and loss of connection from um, the collective so yeah that's another thing I would kind of do bring to my work now is um, I'll work on that soul aspect with people which again to my colleagues I think they all think I've lost the plot but <laughs> you know it's and when I say trying to reconnect people with soul I'm not saying everybody has soul loss or has experienced soul loss or understands what soul loss is but um, trying to bring them back to themselves so for me it can be simple things like meditation mindfulness um, just getting them to do a little bit of guided self-discovery journaling um, and, yeah, I think they're, they're big pieces that I think were being missed and then um, it was funny because when I started the, mar- the meditation um, the ward manager that I had at the time he was like getting really nice feedback from the clients and their parents about the meditation and uh, he was leaving the ward and as he left he handed me a little pamphlet it was actually from the Royal College of Psychiatrists in London about how important spirituality and religion is in mental health recovery and I'd never, in 15 years of mental health nursing, I'd never been handed something like that and the next thing I'm looking at this going actually I'm not crazy, This is the Royal College of Psychiatrists actually recognise this is, this is an essential tool this is a tool that we all have. It's about tapping into a higher power. When you're at that lowest ebb and you feel that you cannot go on, everybody has this thing where there's something, it's, you know, as Jung would have said, it was the collective consciousness. There's something that we are all connected to. And it's the ability to tap into that or even realise that we're part of it. That um, just brings immense, immense mm. healing and uh, energy and, yeah, so my question to you then, because I, I'm really interested and in, maybe again this should be like for another podcast <laughs> I kind of do these kind of things. Um, the higher power, is that God? Your higher power is whoever you wish it to be, whatever God you wish to be. Um, as I say, I would have liked to be one of these people that would have liked to browbeat, browbeat people that were religious and went to church and, you know, through my own ignorance. Um, so your God is whatever... God is to you. Um, I 
don't prescribe to any religion. I don't, you know, follow any particular religious texts. But if somebody comes to me with a religious text and there's a message there or a teaching for me, I'll accept that gladly. But for me, God is whatever this is, wherever it came from, that's God. I like that. If there's a learning there, you're going to take it. That's really interesting to me because, as I said, I don't know what you said, but like I talk about God and Paul is killing me like sometimes. So, you know, and I say this every time for some people know. Um, so I do. And like this thing. So what you're doing, is that a connection to God? It's, you know, we would talk about source. Right. Right. So it's within you. God is within you. It's within all of us. You know, whether you make that connection to a god, to an archangel, to whatever higher power you believe in yourself. It doesn't, there, it's not one thing I have to believe in God as he was portrayed in your religion book in school. You know, whatever you feel comfortable connecting to. We're all working from the same sheets, like, you know, we're all going, come in the same way, we're going out the same way. You know, so whatever you connect to it like it's only this year I have been able to bring myself to believe there is a God or a source you know whatever through the course um, because I always connected God to the Catholic Church and I didn't believe in the Catholic Church I didn't believe in their teachings Um, you know so I kind of found that very hard mm. to go to mass. Mm. I want to go to mass. I don't. I don't buy into what they're selling, mm. you know, as a religion. So, does that mean I don't believe in God? And I really struggled with that mm. until this year, you know. So, I think whatever you want to label that as, that's your preference. Right, I'm not going to go off on a tangent. I really am because I absolutely could. I mean, you might after this, I might answer about it. But um, Barry, coming back, um, it's a bit cold. I might put the heat on for you. Mm. Um, I am coming back to, don't mind me here, coming back to what you, you, the trial. You mm. didn't get into the trial, did you? No. So that was, you know, just, just how events unfolded in the van. I think that was, per- well, it is a blessing because I'm here to tell the story. So I knew going into the trial that, first of all, that trial, um, it was a one in three chance that I was going to get... Uh, a therapeutic dose um, so I had to come off all the medication first of all at that stage I was on seven tablets a day I was on two antidepressants and two mood stabilizers I was on 2,555 tablets a year and I was drinking excessively so I had to go cold turkey so I had come off a week of night duties this is kind of sometime in October 18 are we back to now yeah 18 yeah it would have been yeah. the end of September start of October or was it 19? It's two years. 19. Yeah, 19. So, um, yeah, so I'd been on a week of night duties, and uh, if you do doing the week of night duties, you get a week of annual leave, and then, it, or no, you get a week of nights off, and then another week of annual leave, so I had two weeks, and I knew the clinical trial was coming up then in about a month's time, and they talked about tapering me down off the meds, which, by the way, please listen to your doctors and health professionals. If they ask you to taper <laughs> down, I advise you, you do it as recommended. But me, knowing me and how I operate... I decided that I was going to go cold, cold turkey. 
So on this, uh, yeah, so after the, on my week off of nights, I basically sat in the bedroom for a week and I clucked like a turkey. And yeah, it was good. I got clean, you know, I, I, I got off the alcohol, I got off all those tablets. Um, coming off the tablets, I have to say, it was, it was a tight experience. Um, it was horrendous. Uh, it was horrendous. But look, listen, again, I don't want to paint that picture where people go, God, I'm not going to do it. I'm living testimony here that it can't be done. Um, but I wouldn't advise anybody to do a cold turkey. Take the advice, please, of um, the people that are looking after your care. Um, so anyway, I what happened then was great. I was off the drink and I was off the all the tablets, but I became profoundly depressed. And three weeks later, my mum passed away. So now we're a few weeks away from the clinical trial, and um, they I'd become so depressed that the people running the clinical trial had appointed me a CPN at a psychiatric uh, nurse who was calling out to me daily. And he phoned me then um, one Thursday. He said, I'm outside your house. And I said, where are you? I said, I'm in Belfast. I said, where are you in Belfast? And my mum passed away during the night. I'm so sorry to hear that. Then the following week, we're up for the funeral. And then I think it was like the day after the funeral. He phoned me. He said, where are you? Um, I said, I'm in Ikea. He said, what the hell are you doing in Ikea? I'm at your house. I said, I had to get out of that house. He says, why? I says, um... I have a security chain from the rafters in the garage. It's been there for months, and I kind of always knew that why I was there because I'd never been attached to the motorbike. And I'm actively trying to get Gillian to move the kids down to her mother's for a few nights so we can use it. So he says, right, Barry, I need you to meet me at the hospital straight away. So I went into the hospital, and they had the doctors that were on the clinical trial were there to meet me. And um, basically they said, look, Barry, you know this terms and conditions. If you're experiencing any suicidal ideation, you have to come off the trial. You're too unwell. So they said to me then, um, the other thing is, Barry, is we think you're so unwell, we need you to come into hospital and reinstate all your medication. Well, not all your medication, reinstate medication. And that was that was absolutely breaking point then because of just being through so much and the weeks I'd put myself through and just burying my mom and now they're talking about coming into hospital and I said, no, I won't come into hospital. I think, you know, it was said as a veiled threat and it wasn't said in malice. It was said with the best intention. One of the doctors actually told me that they would take the decision out of my hand. They were contemplating detaining me in hospital. Um, but I think obviously they know because I know the system that when it came to a second opinion doctor, I'd be able to talk my way out of it. So they pulled back on that and they said, right, Barry, we're going to give you two Friday to um, think about it with your name on a bed and tell the hospital to come in as an inpatient and we'll get you going on your meds again. And I said to them on Friday, I'll be going uh, on a retreat. And they were like, what? <laughs> I says, I've been given an opportunity to go on a healing retreat. Um, and the professor was like, Barry, you're in no fit shape to go anywhere. I'm telling you not to go. And I said, look, let me go on this weekend. If I come back on Monday and if I'm in no better shape than I am today, I'll willingly come into the hospital. And I'll take whatever meds you tell me. So I went to the retreat. That was a heavy weekend. And I came back shattered. I was still broken. I probably felt even more broken coming back than I had gone down. Uh, at this stage, obviously, I'm out sick from work. And um, I was supposed to meet. I was with the home treatment team then. I was supposed to meet with them on the Monday. I couldn't meet them. Um, Tuesday, I think I might have rocked up to them. Briefly, showed my face. And then Wednesday, um, Gillian and I lay, I said to Gillian about 12 o'clock, Mum will lie down for half an hour before we pick the youngest girl up from primary school. Gillian slept for, I think it was about 27 minutes. 23. Uh, 
23, 23. <laughs> and then I woke her, I woke her, <laughs> I woke her up <laughs> and uh, she kind of was like, what's going on? I was like, just think. And she's like, what? When I return to work, just think how much more I'll be able to help the patients um, with their recovery and with their mental health now, knowing what I understand. She was like, what are you talking about? You're out sick. You're not going back to work. I says, oh, I am. I'll be back and work the first week in January, which I did. And I haven't looked back since. Don't ask me what happened in those 23 minutes, but there was a light bulb moment. There was a switch clicked in my brain. I don't, I don't know. Well, I do know the, the healing weekend did it. It was the catalyst for it, but it just took time for the work of that weekend to come together where I, um, I could process it, I could integrate it, and I could understand it. I haven't looked back since. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow, I, 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 I've no word, I don't know. <laughs> Imagine going to sleep for 23 minutes waking up to that. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. Yeah. That was it. No, there's been work, community has been work since, and every day's work. I've been truly blessed for... You know, at times, because I was still out sick for the number of weeks until I did return in January, I thought, right, I'll give myself a little bit of grace here. I'm not running straight back in. And the mental health team were advising me, look, Barry, take your time. I give it, I get the, this is a funny story. So the, the lady that was looking after me before I went to the retreat, she had done a depression rating skill. I think it was Bex, I'm not sure which one. But it was out of 30, and I'd scored 24. And three weeks later, after that weekend. 27. Was it 27 out of 30? Jeez, good score for even me. Um, yeah, so we redid, we redid the rating scale three weeks after that weekend, and I scored 10. And the two of us just sat and could, couldn't even speak to each other. We just smiled, because <laughs> we both kind of knew something extraordinary had taken place. Absolutely, it had. Yeah. And if you said the person you were then to the person you are now, and that's it, yeah, okay, so every day you're working, and it's yeah. a working, but you're a completely different person. Yeah. So... Um, things I did then initially, um, kind of trying to get myself in a headspace where I was, you know, when people have these light bulb moments, it's like when people first find their sobriety, they call it the honeymoon period. And it's great, you know, because you're a different person. But unfortunately for a lot of people, that honeymoon period can be short lived. And I always had this worry that what if this is, you know, what if I wake up in two weeks time or a month's time and this is all gone? What have I been back to that old avatar, that old Barry? So that's where you need to keep yourself in check. That's where you need to, when you work on yourself and you make these realizations and you confront your shadows, that you take the lessons from what you've been shown and you carry them. So I, um, uh, I went to AA two or three times and I was sitting there listening to people telling me their difficulties about remaining sober. And I was sitting there going like, I know for a fact I will never drink alcohol again this lifetime. Because for me, I drank alcohol to escape myself because of the headspace I was in. Not being in that headspace, I don't need alcohol. I don't need any substance. It's all right in here. So, yeah, when you make that realisation that you don't need anything. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, obviously the, the, the AA was short-lived. Um, but no, but it's maintained that. Because I have a friend then who's actually a recovering alcoholic who I've met on this spiritual path. And he said to me once, because he, like, he would try and avoid going into pubs and stuff, where I'm quite happy when we're going out for Gillian's 40th birthday party or out for a meal to the pub or whatever we were doing previously. Um, 
I could still do all that. And he said to me once, oh, Barry, just be careful now. Um, if you sit in the barbers for long enough, you're going to get a haircut. So, you know, I'm mindful of that, but I, I still know. With and then I said to Gillian, and generally when I kind of say something, I'm that sort of person, uh, I just have alcohol just doesn't even come on my register. Wouldn't even th- I wouldn't thank you for a pint of Guinness now. Mm. I think I'd actually probably be sick if I drank a pint of Guinness. Mm. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I'm so glad. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm just, I'm truly blessed that way. And then the meds, so um, what I did do actually then, I picked up cigarettes, I hadn't spoken 15 years, and then I kind of needed advice, you know, mm. so I picked up cigarettes on and off there for the last year and a half, but I haven't had a cigarette since July 5th either. Mm. And again, that was just like, Jillian was like, oh, you're getting a bit chesty and all, um, you know, we've sat them down because I kept setting them down maybe for two or three weeks and I'd pick them up and smoke my head off myself again. And she said to me, Look, please, you sound like you're getting a bit of a cough. You set them down. I said, Right, fine. Cigarette's gone. I haven't given them a second thought. So, again, yes, now again, and I don't mean to make this sound as if it's easy. You know, and I'm not trying to minimize the difficulties of battling with mental health issues and depression and substance um, dependence. Um, what I'm trying to tell people is when it happens for you, when you can get yourself to that space, it can be it can be an easy and a joyful and a blissful road, beautiful path to be on. But again, it's maintenance. It's you know things like um, healthy eating. Don't eat red meat. Don't drink coffee. Don't smoke no more. Don't do alcohol no more. Um, get myself out into nature. See swimming. You know these little things. Meditating feeding my mind with the right information. You know, I don't think we've sat in front of a television in two years. We don't have a TV. In we don't have a TV anymore. in the house anymore, apart from the kids' bedroom. You know, just, you know, don't bring that negative energy. Don't bring that heaviness into you that you don't need. If you know what it is, keeps your vibration high. You stay in that space by maintaining what you need to do. And your body will teach you. You know, you'll know for yourself what works for you, what doesn't work for you. And this is the difficulty. It's ran off that um, path. That's maybe where people do fall down. Sure, maybe I just went out for one night, or maybe only had one pint, or sure, it's only one cigarette, or you know, actually, you know, um, looking after my dad's maybe not that important. But for me, it's all it's all encompassed. It's you know, the whole thing of recovery is save. It's uh, mental, physical, and spiritual. And, you know, it's nourishing all those components. You know, looking after those components. You know, this year is only a lander. You know, this is just the one I was given this time round. Um, uh, that my soul uh, resides in. But while it's here, I should respect it, as we all should, you know, uh, treat it with respect. Um, for, yeah, it's just it's pulling these things together. Um, Your patients are very lucky. They're not lucky, they're uh, blessed. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Mm. Mm. Yeah, they really are. They really are. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, like he mm. says, it's not... He's still a work in progress. Yeah, of course. Mm, yes, know, no, that's not, the other side, yeah. Not to sound like, oh, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't mm-hmm. eat red meat or I don't drink coffee. You know, every day has to be worked at. Mm-hmm. You know, we are talking about addictive personality. Mm. I'm putting on the heat, that's all I'm doing yeah, here because I don't want people to think I'm ignoring um, it. I'm putting on the heat, it's cold. You know, we are, every day you have to focus on what that means for you. How are you going to sustain the place that you're in to keep yourself on that even keel and above? Um, you know, and even now there's days where I'm like, oh, it's a bit flat. And I'm like, go and do mm. 
what you haven't been doing. Go and get into the sea. You know, the sea is a complete reset for him. You know, and like a few months ago, he was like a little bitch on skates. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I'm <laughs> um, You know, testing every one of your last patients. Mm. And I said, right, get the swimming gear ready and off we go. I don't want to go for a swim. I said, well, I'm going. So you may just come with us. So I got the kids already, packed him, his swim stuff, got out to Kleine and got in and he got out and he was like, oh, yeah, I was like, <laughs> he said, shut up, <laughs> shut up. Yeah. Sometimes you know best, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it is, you know, every day is work. Yeah, so it's been able to ground yourself and center yourself. Uh, again, I say this to people and I don't say it in a dismissive way and um, again, it's when I'm kind of doing meditation with the patients. I'm, I have to be very um, intentional. Telling them I'm not telling you meditation is going to cure, yeah, or heal whatever's going on with you. Yeah, but it could be a very valuable tool in helping you in that process. Um, uh, but yeah, for this for the sea swimming, um, uh, I don't know what it is about getting into that cold ocean. But literally, if, and that's what I'm trying to say, I still do have a busy head. We all have the monkey mind, you know. And one of my, one of my, um, one of the people that we've been blessed to meet in these last few years, the first time uh, she ever said to me, and I remember I'm working in psychiatry 15 years, and the first time somebody turns around to you and says, monkey mind, thinking, 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 this is the mind. I looked at that person and say, you're mad. And then when you understand, when it clicks. And again, that's not to be dismissive of people. Oh, listen, you're not your thoughts. Of course we're our thoughts. We identify as our thoughts. And when our thoughts are treating us terribly, we feel terrible. But we have the higher power to become the observer of those thoughts. You know, and my thoughts still get on top of me. And when those thoughts get on top of me, that's when Jillian will say to me, you need to ground yourself if I can't acknowledge it already myself. And that's when I'll get into the ocean. Or I'll do something I know that nourishes my soul, that reset me. So yeah, and I'm not trying to say that uh, everything's perfect. I'm perfectly imperfect, just like everybody else. <laughs> Sorry, I went off a bit there. Yeah, no, but that, you know it is, right? You know, it's not a matter of oh, I'm cured. Mm. You know, you heal different parts mm. as you go along. You know, that's the layers that you peel off. So. Each layer is giving you some new lease of life, you know, that you're letting go of whatever that may be, past traumas, you know, whatever, um, that you can sit and say, yeah, okay, I don't need to carry that, mm. you know, we're so good at carrying mm. shit mm. that we don't need to. Just drop it. Drop it. That's <laughs> another thing, sorry, um... The, when Jillian's saying about letting stuff go um, it's a terrible thing that we do in mental health as well and this really kind of dawned on me um, in the last few years I don't know why we do it but we do it as professionals the doctors and myself and my colleagues other nurses do it but also the patients do it in mental health you take ownership of your condition you say I am depressed I am anorexic I am schizophrenic I am bipolar nobody else out there goes around saying I am cancer, I am diabetes, I am broken leg. I think we need to get away from that. Mm. 
you know, that your experiences can be life enduring, but they can also be transient. But if we tell ourselves we are our conditions, it's going to be hard to escape them. Mm-hmm. Barry, tell me, as I said, I asked you the question there and we didn't get an answer, but Sorry. I just would like to answer it. No, you're fine. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like, as I said, about the teenagers now growing up, and mm. I think they, and even though we know, like, November, we have men struggling with women, but I think the mm-hmm. teenage, and as parents, and me, with a, what's a pubescent child, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Um, how, like, what advice would you give people? So, I think what has happened, um, and again, I want to talk in very generalised terms mm. here, because I do work in adolescence and have done for the last number of years, so I, I, you know, I have experience there, but um, I don't want to talk just from my own clinical background. So I'm talking, you know, what I've seen and what I've read in literature and people I would follow, like uh, the likes of Gabor Mate. Gabor Mate would talk about um, stressed parentage. We're living in a society now where um, just because of the demands of society and the pressure of society, a lot of homes you have both parents working and a lot of times possibly both parents double jobbing. And I'm not saying that parents are doing anything wrong in doing that. They're doing what they need to do to pay the bills. I get it. We've been there. We've, at a time I was nursing, running a gym, and Gillian had her own business, and we were raising two children. We've done that madness. We know what it's like. Um, thankfully, we, we held it together. But the, the young people lose out. So you have that uh, there's, there's an absence of the parents there, which has an impact on what Gabor Mate has picked up on, is that... Um, Young people are turning to their peers for support younger and the sort of support that they need in those nurturing years for guidance because their parents are absent. And when you're turning to your peers and you're in your early teens, instead of turning to your folks and saying, I'm having trouble with this or I'm having a difficulty or I'm having a problem and you're getting advice off your own peers who have little or no more understanding than you do, things are going wrong. You know, um, So that's one thing I definitely can identify Um Another thing as well, actually going back to Gabor Mate, um, when it talks about addiction, again, what we do wrong there is we ask, why the addiction? It's the wrong question. The question is, why the pain? And it's like Gillian said with the, the, the psychotropics, not to knock medications. And again, I would, you know, if people are struggling, go to your GP and whatever you're prescribed, take it and use it um, as prescribed because all those medications kept me alive all those years. Mm-hmm. They didn't help me heal to the place where I am now, but without them I wouldn't be here. Um, but what Gillian has identified, and is very true in a lot of instances, but certainly for me on a personal level, they can mask the symptoms. They can mask the shadow. They can mask the issues. And if you're not addressing those issues, how are they going to be resolved? You know. So for young people... Um, don't you know if you need if you need support you know yes you have your mates but um there's other supports there hopefully you have your parents there that you can lean on and you can turn to but i think you know there's other services there there's different phone lines and whatnot um another big thing that i'm seeing coming through which is a real alarm bell especially for our young girls are getting to that age now where they, they want the smartphones and whatnot is social media social media you know it's like anything it's like the ego the monkey mind the ego can be a beautiful assistant or it can be a horrible boss. Uh, social media can have loads of positive benefits like being able to share stories like this to people that would maybe not otherwise hear them. But also then um, there's the other side a lot um, with eating disorders and self-harm. 
a lot of young people or any amount of sites, other young people advocating and encouraging this, these sort of behaviours. But not even that, it's the disconnect. So if you're disconnected from your parents, if they're busy, um, and then if you're relying on your teenage, yeah, your, your peers for support and maybe not getting the advice and support that you need. Um, but then also the, the, the disconnect with social media. Um, I've had young people tell me that I didn't realise you had this thing called screen time. I've had young people tell me they could look at their phone for 10 hours a day. <laughs> now, you don't have to work at mental health to know that somebody's staring at a three by four inch screen 10 hours a day that that's going to lead to serious mental health difficulties. You know, there's nothing positive can come from that. You know, so, um, yeah, so pointers is, you know, for, for you're saying for, for, for an adult with their teenagers, hold them tight, keep them close. Always make them aware that you're there to support them and they can come to you with anything. There is no secrets. There are no wrongs. The only time we do anything wrong is if we make a mistake and we don't acknowledge it. Everything's just a teaching and a lesson. But knowing that your parents are there for you, or you know, it could be an aunt or an uncle or whoever, but having um, adults, um, adult influence in your life that's of a positive nature, I think is very supportive for young people. And then, yeah, a sense of cohesion. You know, unfortunately, and again, this will be, if we could do another podcast on this again, because I've witnessed it for two years, but um, the impact, it's, it's our children and the adolescents and the young adults, um, or teenagers rather, that, I see have been most impacted by the Corona Coaster. You know, they have lost so much of the last two years of their lives. They really have come out the rough end. And um, I think you touched on it yourself earlier, saying um, we're going to see a deluge. We're already witnessing it now, but mm-hmm. in the years of recovery from this, the mental health implications for the younger generation are going to be terrible. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's support, um, having positive role models. Uh, and again, but yeah, obviously... Being mindful of what you're doing. Um, again, teenagers are going to turn to substances, you know, yeah. um, alcohol and drugs. It's a rite of passage. Teenagers are going to do it. Uh, I can't sit here and say, don't do it. I did it myself. Um, but uh, believe me, um, yeah, mm, it doesn't end well. And Barry, I follow a girl and I know she, she says it's not an eating disorder account, but she does have an eating disorder. Um and you've mentioned that, like, is and I'm just from her and from from Amanda talking, like, is is that the worst affected in terms of budgets? I know there's been cutbacks and mm-hmm. something that was supposed to be promised this year and it wasn't promised. Um, like mental health overall, mm-hmm. the budgets and are not there, but is eating disorders one of the biggest ones? All of the services are so underfunded; it is actually a national scandal. Um, uh, mental health UK and here say I worked in Belfast for 12 years prior to coming down to here um, and you know uh, mental health certainly in the UK because it was public uh, funded um, the NHS was always the Cinderella service uh, but here um, reading reports from the journal come back I think it was just at the end of the first lockdown um, at that time um, we had 9,500 uh, children were waiting on primary psychological uh, assessments now that was a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. We're a year and a half further in. Um, uh, Self harm, depression. I think last year again, reading in the journal, um, it was was it eighteen percent of boys and sixteen percent of girls were experiencing um, depressive symptoms in Ireland. Um, that's going to be much higher now. So yeah, self harms went up 
depressed mood anxieties went up um a lot of young girls are turning to restrictive eating as a sense of control through all this yeah unfortunately the numbers are rising rapidly as well it's very sad it really is isn't it it's heartbreaking looking at what's happening Mm. but you know guys I just and I know, like as I said, and we were a little bit. And when I said, "Well, hang on, you're going to have to talk," and I'm throwing him <laughs> under the bus, I'm going to throw you under the bus. Um, but I think, and now CJ wants us to finish as well, and um, he's had enough of us here. Um, he'll stop now. Um, but just to say thank you both for sitting with me tonight, and I know you to come to the children and so on, um, and sharing your story. And I know it is going to help so many people. And I say this all the time, but with each podcast, there is people who can be helped with each story. Um, but I just have to say, like, I absolutely understand that gleam in your eye. I absolutely understand that smile when you are talking about him and looking <laughs> at him, um, because I, I feel it. Like, I really, I feel it. I feel it, Barry. I think you are an absolute wonderful person. Mm. And as I said, your patients are so blessed to have you in their life. Like I'm really, like, I feel it. And, you know, for someone to be able to do that to someone else, it is, it is a spiritual thing. It is something from that's been sent from God. And I know, but mm. for me, I feel that way. That's how I feel about you. And, you know, well done. And, you know, congratulations on t- t- the two years. And I know, I have no doubt. That it will continue and you're probably where poor here just to help people because that's who you are. Thank you very much. I'm trying for case and you know, and but you 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 you've lived with it firsthand. So best of luck guys and uh, you know, I'll share we'll share everything here and all, but thank you all so much. Thank you both yeah. so much for sitting down thank with me you for having mm. us. I have to do a bit of plug now since she put me in this. So the page, the page where this all began. Sorry, um, you can find Jillian's page on Instagram if anybody wants to follow the medicine mum and catch up with our story and see how things progress from there. We'd love to have you on board. Absolutely, and I'll tag you here as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.